welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Father, we thank you this morning that you welcome us. Those of us who are in Christ this morning, those of us who are trusting in your Son, that you welcome us as your own children. Lord, that we don't come here as your enemies. We don't even come here as strangers to you but we come here as your kids. And we look forward to hearing a word from our Father. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us. We pray that you would strengthen us. We pray, Lord, that you would give us what fathers give, instruction, love, protection, care. Lord, you give all this in abundance, and so we're excited to meet with you together this morning as your children. Jesus, we come before you I'm excited to think about what you've done on the cross. And you had promised that when you were lifted up on the cross from the earth, that you would draw all people to yourself. And so we pray that you would do that this morning, that you would draw all people to yourself, all the people in this room to yourself. Lord, we pray that it would be the beginning of us going out and sharing the gospel and you drawing even more to yourself. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would be here, Lord, that you would be here in a powerful way. We know that you are everywhere present, but we know, Lord, that there are some times when your presence is felt, when your presence is thick with your people, when you, are, when you give an awareness of your presence. Lord, we pray that we would be deeply aware of your presence this morning. We pray, Lord, that we would be deeply aware of our sin We pray, Lord, that we would be deeply aware that we can find full pardon in your son, Jesus. And so we pray, Lord, as we open your word, that there would be a reality here that that we don't normally feel, and that all of a sudden we feel that we've met with you, the living God. And only you can accomplish this, Lord, and we pray that you would. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are in a series on doctrine this summer, and this morning we're going to talk about the doctrine of the atonement. So last week, uh, Marcelo taught on the doctrine of the Trinity. Next week will be the doctrine of union with Christ. And this morning, though, we're going to look at the doctrine of the atonement. And um, we're going to look at what did God accomplish through the death of Jesus. We know historically that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified by the Romans under Pontius Pilate in Jerusalem on a Friday afternoon, the most likely day was April 3rd, 33 AD. It's a Friday afternoon. And so after several unjust trials that started that night before and went on until the early morning, after several unjust trials and after he was beaten and after a crown of thorns was put on his head and, and he was wrapped in a mock kingly robe and they bowed down to him and beat him with sticks. And after they whipped him, And we know the whippings were, you know, these leather strips that had pieces of bone and metal in them, and they would fillet his back after he was whipped and beaten and mocked. He was led outside the city to be crucified. And we know that Jesus' arms would be attached to that heavy crossbeam that they would have uh, put nails uh, through his wrists, right here, the little bones in your wrist here. And the nail would have gone through here to pin him to the wood. It would have gone along his, his, uh, his nerves here and caused intense pain to shoot up and down his arms. We know that after they put him on the cross beam, they hooked him to the, the, the vertical beam and they put one nail right through both of his ankles, right through both of his feet and attached him there. 
We know that crucifixion was something that happened by suffocation. So once the victim became too tired or was too painful to continually push up on the nail in their ankles, that they would eventually succumb, no longer being able to take any breaths and suffocate. We know that crucifixion would often take sometimes days, sometimes hours. It depends on the severity of the beatings beforehand. We know that Jesus was beat so bad beforehand that he couldn't carry that cross beam all the way to to the cross. And then we know that eventually he did die that day and the soldiers pierced him through the ribs right into his, his lungs up into his heart to make sure that he was dead. They were expert killers. They wanted to make sure that they had completed the job. And then they put him in a guarded tomb awaiting his resurrection. He was dead. He was a dead man for three days, raised on the third day. And you could have witnessed all this. If you were living in Jerusalem in 33 AD on April 3rd, that, that uh, Friday afternoon, you could have witnessed this whole thing, and it actually would have looked just like all the other crucifixions the Roman Empire did. Roman Empire did thousands of these. There was one day they did 6,000 in one day. All along a road, they had crucified um, some rebels to their empire. And so if you watched it, you might not know why it happened. You might not have any idea. Many people that were there that day had no idea why the cross happened. And that's what we want to look at this morning is the why of the atonement, the why of the cross. What was God doing through the cross? C.H. Spurgeon said this. He said, abide hard by the cross and search the mystery of his wounds. And so that's what we want to do this morning. We want to ask the question, what did God accomplish for us? through the death of Jesus. And I want to look at five, what I call images of the atonement. These are five ways of looking at what the cross accomplished. And um, they're not like five competing theories of the atonement. They're five different ways to look at the same thing, just like you might pick up a diamond and look at it from different angles and see different colors and different light coming out of it. We can look at the cross from these five different angles and see some of the glories of the cross. And I have for you guys a handout here, and you're like, it's a very strange-looking handout. You wonder how the numbers go and stuff like this? Well, what you guys are going to do is you guys are going to do a craft, kind of. First step would be to draw a cross in the middle. You guys have pens there. And so go ahead and draw a cross just like this has here. My daughter Ellie thought this was fabulous, that the adults would have a craft. And so what we're going to do as we go through is we're going to draw a little picture that's going to represent each one of these five images of the atonement. So start by making yourself a little cross there. And I apologize to people that live in, listen to this on recording and have no idea what we're doing, but hey, come to church. <laughs> so they're laughing at you. Okay. So start with drawing a cross there, and we're going to go through it. And one of the benefits of doing this is, you know, people learn by different ways, and some people learn by drawing, and it would be great if you could, at a coffee shop or at lunch, whip out a napkin, and you could actually draw this out and talk to somebody about all the things Jesus has accomplished through the cross. First image we want to look at is justification. You can see that in the number one spot there on your handout. Justification is a legal term. It was taken from first century Roman law courts. Justification was a verdict of a judge saying that the defendant was righteous. The defendant was completely in the right. And the image that I like to do for this is, um, and you can pick whatever you want, but I like to do a little gavel. You know, you got a little gavel slamming down, declaring righteousness. And you could do far better than that. But there you go. That's what I got. Justification, guys, solves a huge problem that we have. Our huge problem is that we're guilty. And when I say we're guilty, I don't mean that we're subjectively guilty, that we just feel guilty. I mean that apart from Christ, all of us are legally guilty. 
We're guilty in the way that a felon who has been convicted in a court of law is guilty whether he feels bad about it or not. Okay, And it's an objective legal guilt that we have before God because we've broken his law. And so this isn't about guilty feelings. This is about guilty reality. This is about we've broken God's law. Romans 3.20 says, By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law is not for you to try and earn it. Work it. See if you can make yourself righteous before God. It says that the law is to show you the knowledge of your sin. No one will be right before God based on the keeping of the law. And so God's verdict on every human being is guilty. And guys, this should be entirely obvious to us as we look through like the Ten Commandments. You look through the Ten Commandments, they are very reasonable. I mean, these aren't very difficult laws. These aren't laws that, you know, are totally strange. They make tons of sense. They're actually replicated in many, many different cultures. But we don't measure up. We look through the Ten Commandments. We do not measure up to these. We can see that we're guilty. Or you could take Jesus's very simple two commandments. He's like, you want to do ten? Let's do two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. We failed out one even. And so we know that we are guilty apart from Christ. Whether we actually feel it or not, we are guilty. And so justification is the good news that Jesus came, he lived a perfect life in your place, and then took your sins on himself on the cross. And so there's two movements there. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. There's two things going on there. One is, is that he took your sin, and a lot of people that haven't even been to church would recognize that, that, that Jesus, when he came, he died on the cross, he had our sins on him. But there's another piece of justification, because some people say, well, justification is just as if I never sinned, that somehow justification gives you a zero balance before God, that it takes away your sin and makes you kind of a blank slate again. But it's more than that, guys. In justification, we actually get Jesus' righteousness. We don't go from sin to no sin. We go from sin to no sin to Jesus' righteousness. And, and that's what it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. And so we get his righteousness. And this is a declaration of God the judge that we are no longer guilty before him, but we're actually righteous, as righteous as Jesus. Isn't that amazing? And, and that's the only judge that matters. He has declared our guilt removed. So that's justification. Second one, propitiation. Propitiation is a, a religious term, and it was actually taken from first century pagan worship. And you think, oh, that's kind of crazy. It was. So what it was, propitiation was in pagan worship around this time, first century, even before, when the worshipers thought, you know what? God's not happy with us, which was true. But they thought of gods and false gods. And they thought, you know, God's not happy. We need to do something to somehow appease him. We need something to somehow propitiate him. What they do is they would offer animal sacrifices or even human sacrifices as a way to kind of take away the wrath of the gods or God. And so the symbol I like to use for this one is like an altar, an altar. And you can definitely do this better. You got like a little sacrificial animal here. And then you got like a flame. That's what I would do for propitiation. In propitiation, the problem is that we are under God's wrath. Um, Romans 2.5 says, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God the righteous judge will be revealed. Now I know, like, how many minutes into the sermon am I? And I'm saying the word wrath. A lot of Christians back away from the word wrath. They don't really like the idea of thinking about God as a God of wrath. 
problem is the Bible, okay? Because the Bible mentions God's wrath directly or indirectly over 600 times. So that would be more than his love. I mean, that's a very common, some of you guys are doing the Bible reading plan and you're seeing, especially in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament as well, the passage I quoted, that God has wrath for sin. What is wrath? Wrath is God's holy anger. And God's wrath, guys, is different than human wrath. Human wrath is often unpredictable and, you know, inappropriate and out of control, right? God's wrath is always predictable and appropriate and in control, but that doesn't make it any less deadly, okay? His wrath is far more deadly than any human wrath. The good news of propitiation is that Jesus came and he absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf. He absorbed that wrath. He was the sacrifice that took away the wrath of God. We see that in Romans 3.25. It says, Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, a sacrifice that takes away wrath. And this is vastly different than what would happen in pagan worship, because pagan worship was all about, like, God's angry, you better figure out something to make him not angry, and you try and figure out what that sacrifice is to put it forth. In the gospel, guys, God tells us very clearly, there's nothing we can do to take away the wrath of God ourselves, and in the gospel, we hear the very good news that God himself has made the offering that takes away his own wrath. Isn't that amazing? I mean, we think about like, you know, all these different deities and they want some sort of a sacrifice. God goes, nope, you can't do it. I will offer the sacrifice. And guess what the sacrifice is? Himself. He puts forward himself. God the Son became that sacrifice. And we see that really graphically in the Garden of Gethsemane. It'd be worth turning there. In Matthew 26, 39, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the night before he was crucified. And he's praying, and the reality of the cross is hitting him super hard. He knows exactly what he's come to do. And he's praying, and he says this, uh, Matthew 26, 39, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then a little bit later down in verse 42, he says, Father, if it, is not, if it cannot be passed unless I drink it, your will be done. What's the cup he's talking about? The cup he's talking about is a cup that you could read about over and over again in the Old Testament. It's mentioned in Jeremiah 25, 15. It's mentioned as the cup of the wine of wrath, which God will make all the nations to drink. It's a cup of wrath. In, in uh, Psalm uh, 75, 8, it says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed. He pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth shall drink it down to the dregs. So it's this image, it's um, this image of, of God's wrath slowly being stored up for each one of us because of our sin. It's like, a, it's like a slow drip coffee maker. And with each sin, another drop of wrath goes into the cup. Drip, 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 drip our whole lives. It is building. And you say, well, you know, I don't really believe in the wrath of God because I'm doing all kinds of things in my life that God doesn't want me to do. And I never get hit by a thunderbolt or anything like that. Everything's going along great for me, right? It's being stored right? That's the point. It's being stored up. But on the cross, guys, Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath dry down to the dregs for you. If you'll trust in Jesus, what he was doing on the cross was drinking that full cup of God's wrath. The cup that actually will continue to fill for the next several years till you die, that whole cup, every one of your sins, your past sins, your sins of this moment that you're sinning right now, and the ones in the future, that whole cup he took and he drank it for all of God's people. Isn't that amazing? 
It's amazing, right? And so that's propitiation. Then there's redemption. Redemption, so the first one was a legal term. The second one was a religious term. Redemption's a financial term. Redemption was a term that was taken from first century slave markets. A, a redemption was a price you could pay to buy a slave out of a slave market. And because the problem that the redemption solves is that we are slaves to sin. We're slaves to sin. You might not feel like a slave to sin this morning, but if you're not in Jesus, you are. Jesus said this, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. If the sun sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Sin is enslaving. Uh, it's funny in the context of that, Jesus was talking about, you know, if, if you abide in my word, then, then I'll set you free and you'll be free indeed and all this. And the, and the Jews that were there were like, we're Jews. We've never been enslaved to anyone kind of ironic, right? If there was ever a people group that was enslaved to everyone, it was the Jews. And we're the same way. We tend to think that, you know, I'm just doing the things I want to do. It doesn't feel like slavery. But the thing is, it will when you try to stop, right? Sin is enslaving, guys. Only God can create good and lasting pleasures. What sin does is it takes pleasures that God has created and it distorts God's good gift, makes it far less satisfying and way enslaving. That's what he does. That's what the evil one does. That's what sin does. It takes God's good gifts and, and distorts them so that they're less satisfying and more enslaving. And then there's this law, and you guys are all aware of it, this law of diminishing returns, where sin takes more and more of your life and gives you less and less happiness in return. That's slavery to sin. And slavery to sin is like an itch, right? It's an itch that promises satisfaction if you'll just scratch it one more time. Ever had an itch like that? It just needs one more scratch and I'll be good. I'll be satisfied. That's what sin does. And, and, and it doesn't satisfy, right? And as you scratch and scratch, the wound grows and the itch intensifies more and more. That's slavery to sin. And some of you guys right now are in slavery to sin and you know it very well. And you could, you could say exactly what it is. It's a, it's a thing that you wanted to quit over and over again and the wound grows as you scratch it. And the good news of redemption, guys, though, is that Jesus bought us out of slavery to sin. And he bought us out of slavery to sin at the cost of his own blood. And um, I like to draw like, you know, like a, a manacle type thing that would go around your arm and some chain and then like a broken chain, right? That'd be a good image for redemption. Redemption is that Jesus bought you out of slavery to sin at the price of his own blood. Here, 1 Peter 1.18. I love this passage. It says, Knowing that you're ransomed or redeemed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. Don't you love that? We were, we were ransomed or, or redeemed out of the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. How many of you guys have futile ways you've inherited from family members, you know, generational type sins that you've taken part in? Or you can think of just humanity, that we've learned a way of living that's not right, a way that's in rebellion to God, and that he has redeemed us out of the slave market, not with silver or gold, but with his blood. Isn't that amazing? That Jesus would want to free us from that cycle of sin with his blood. He bought us with his blood. And because Jesus bought you out of slavery, you can now learn to live in freedom. Romans 6.11 is great on that. It says this, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. 
Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness for sin, listen to this, for sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law, but under grace. We no longer have to be enslaved to any particular sin. And I know that that's something that almost no Christians believe. So let me say it again. You do not have to be enslaved to any particular sin. Will you be sinless? You will not be sinless. You will sin in this life. You do not have to be a slave to any particular sin. That's super important. Because almost every Christian at some point in their life has some sort of repetitive habitual sin that they just figure they're going to take with them to the grave. You will take sin to the grave. You do not have to be enslaved to any particular sin for the rest of your life. You might not have known that. Satan would not like you to know that. Okay? Satan is like, you know, after the Civil War, there was a pro, uh, emancipation, uh, the proclamation of emancipation proclamation. proclamation, the emancipation proclamation, and that went out to the slaves, right, to tell them they were free, right? Satan doesn't want you to get that. He doesn't want you to read Romans 6. He doesn't want you to think that there is no sin that you have to remain enslaved to. Now we can learn, guys, to live in freedom that Jesus has bought from us. And that's what discipleship is. When we talk about discipleship, discipleship is learning to do everything Christ has commanded by the power of the Spirit. And hear me, I'm not saying we're going to be sinless, but we can walk in freedom from any particular sin, and we can learn to do the things Christ has commanded. There's nothing that Christ has commanded that you can't learn to do. Okay? There's nothing that Christ has commanded that you can't learn to do by the power of the Holy Spirit, right? But it does require learning. We have to learn how to walk in the freedom that he's purchased for us. If you're a Christian and you're in bondage to some habitual sin, you need to reach out to your brothers and sisters. And you need to do it right away. Don't be cynical. Don't be thinking like, not me. This is just something I'm going to just keep with me for the rest of my life. That's a lie of the enemy. He doesn't want you to know that you're free, but you can be free. And so, and Jesus bought it. I mean, Jesus bought your freedom with his blood. Do you think he wants to leave you in some habitual sin pattern that's ruining you? Right? Redemption is the good news that through the cross, Jesus bought us out of slavery to sin and now works freedom in us by the Holy Spirit more and more every day. Your, your slavery has ended. You can learn to walk in freedom. Fourth, we're really moving along here. Christus Victor, okay? Christus Victor. Christus Victor is really awesome. So the first one was a, this is, so this is a legal term. This is a religious term. This is a financial term. Christus Victor, which we're going to put down here, is a military term. It's drawn from first century warfare. When a king won a war and acquired power over a new territory, he was announced the victor. He was announced his victory. And guys, our land, our world, needs a king like that. We needed a king to come in and have victory and claim this place back for himself. Because the problem that Christus Victor tells us about is that we've let evil into our world. We've let evil in. As a human race, we've let evil in here, into the world. Adam, the first man, believed the lies of Satan. He rebelled against God, and he lost the throne he had over creation because human beings were originally created to rule over the world under God. So God rules the world. Human beings were meant to rule under him and, and steward the place and protect it and make it flourish. And Adam, he disobeys God, and he loses the throne, right? Even worse, he allowed Satan and evil and death to enter the world. 
We let evil into this creation. You think, like, how can there be a good God and so much evil in the world? We let it in, <laughs> okay? Like, if we want to look at who's responsible, we let it in. And we have tons of cultural stories about this, guys. We have tons of stories about human beings letting an evil out into the world and can't put it back in. Most famous one would be Pandora's box, right? She gets this gift for her wedding. It's like, here's a beautiful box. Don't open it. And then, of course, she opens it, and evil comes out, and she can't stuff it back in. Um, but we have tons of stories like that, like The Mummy, The Matrix, Planet of the Apes, Jumanji. I mean, tons of them. Terminator. We could go on and on. Stories about how human beings have let evil into the world, and they can't put it back in. Right? We have tons. Why do we have stories like that? Because we know it happened. Every human being knows down deep inside that we have let evil out of the box and we can't stuff it back in and it's gone out into the world. We can't shove it back in. First, First John 5.19 says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Take a look at your news. Not right now. But take a look at your news and see the evil. I mean, how desensitized have you gotten about shootings? Like, oh, there's another one. Should we pray about that one? You know, it's like over and over and over again. There is an evil in this world. Our world is under the tyranny of evil. And a lot of you guys only see this in political terms, right? Oh, it's, it's the Democrats. That's the evil. That's the liberals. Oh, no, no. It's the conservatives. It's those guys. They're the evil, right? What we've done is we've, we're not seeing the real evil in the world. We're blaming it on people. Ephesians 6.12 says... For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities, against cosmic powers over this present evil age, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. I mean, people love conspiracy theories. How many of you guys just like to go on YouTube and just get conspiracy theory after conspiracy theory? Loves conspiracy theories. There's one right there. A lot of you guys do. You send them to me. Here's the deal, though. Here's the deal. Your conspiracy theory doesn't go deep enough. You say, oh, well, there's this group doing this, or oh, you know who's really behind that? It doesn't go deep enough. It's child's play, what you're talking about. Every one of your conspiracy theories is, is actually a smokescreen for the ultimate conspiracy. Right. The ultimate conspiracy is that the evil one, Satan, and his workers are behind the scenes making this world a nightmare, right? You're like, oh, it's the Illuminati, it's this, it's that. It's all smokescreen, guys. You love those conspiracy theories. Look at the deeper one. Christus Victor, though, guys, is the good news that Jesus came as the perfect second Adam, and he was obedient where the first Adam was sinful, and he defeated Satan, evil, and death. Where Adam failed when tempted, Jesus succeeded, and then through the cross, he won back the throne over the world. He defeated sin, Satan, evil, and death. And guys, this was promised from the first chapters of the Bible. When you look at Genesis 3, right after they fell and they were kicked out of the garden, there was a promise that the seed of the woman's kind of cryptic promise that the seed of the woman would, would crush the head of the serpent. And we see that thousands of years later, Jesus comes. And in 1 John 3, 8, it says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's what he came to do. And on the cross, Jesus defeated the powers of Satan, evil, and death. It's called Christus Victor. And I like this one. This is my phone. I hope you left space at the bottom because I like to do it this way. So you do this. And then like the cross is like crushing his head. Christus Victor. Yeah, make it a dragon. I don't care. Um, Christus Victor, guys, has present and future benefits. The future benefit is that one day Jesus comes back as king. He throws Satan in the lake of fire, and he makes the whole world new. 
That's the ultimate, right? That's what's coming. Revelation 21, 4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things that passed away. That's the future benefit of Christus Victor. But in the meantime, we have other benefits, and I can't go into all of them, but we are able to enjoy some of the benefits of Jesus' victory over evil and over Satan. Um, Jesus spoke of his first coming as binding Satan and limiting his power. And so you, th- you think, you see him kind of running rampant, and then Jesus comes on the scene, and Matthew 12, 28 says this. Jesus says, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house, talking about Satan, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. And that's what we see here. We see that through the cross, Jesus has defeated Satan. He's going to come and throw him in the lake of fire and get rid of him entirely soon. But before that, he's actually bound him in the sense that he's allowing his church, his people, to rip off Satan to rip off his kingdom. And so every time you share the gospel with somebody and that person comes to Christ and they get transferred into the kingdom of Jesus, his house is being plundered. How many of you guys would like to just go and like rip Satan off a little bit? Right? That is what he has for us through Christus Victor, that through prayer and through asking God to break down these oppressions and, and to free people from bondage to Satan, he's actually allowing the gospel to go forth and conquer. His kingdom is advancing, just like the leaven he talked about, or just like the mustard seed that grows into a tree. His gospel is going forth. In the gospel, Jesus is sharing his victory with us. I love in uh, Romans 16 where it says, soon the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. It's a benediction. Maybe we'll do it today, you know? Um, But that's what he's doing even now. Christus victory is the good news that through the cross, Jesus defeated Satan, evil, and death, and will soon make the whole world new. Awesome? The fifth one. We're moving along. Adoption. Adoption, okay, so we had, uh, we have legal, we have a religious term, we have a financial term. We have a military term. Adoption is a very personal one. This is an image taken from the household. And the problem that adoption solves for us is that we've made ourselves God's enemy. But he wants to make us his kids. And adoption's about that. In Ephesians 2.1, it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That was us, right? Among whom we all lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. And we were by nature, what? Children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We sinned and we made God our enemy. I don't know about you. I don't like having enemies. I don't like making enemies. You know, I try to have the minimum amount of enemies. This is the worst enemy you could have, right? Like that we, by our sin, would make God our enemy is insane. I don't know if you guys have had that feeling where you kind of, you know, you you wronged a neighbor and you kind of don't want to see them anymore in the neighborhood or things like that, or you got some deal with somebody at work and you try and avoid them. This is God, guys. We make God our enemies. There's no avoiding him, right? But the adoption is the good news that through the cross, Jesus turned us, his enemies, into his sons and daughters. Which to me sounds kind of overboard. Honestly, it just sounds a little overboard. I mean, that he would declare us righteous in his sight, that's good enough, right? That's amazing. That he would take away his holy wrath from us, we could stop there. That he would save us from slavery to sin, is amazing. 
and that he would, you know, crush the head of the serpent and make the whole world new. But that's not enough for him. He wants to adopt us as his kids. And in fact, that's actually the ultimate purpose of the gospel is that he would adopt us. All these things are to get the problems, the obstacles out of the way for God to welcome us into his family. Check out Galatians 4, 5. We're going to spend some time there, so really turn there. But this is the ultimate purpose of the gospel. In Galatians 4, 5, he talks about in the fullness of time that God sent forth his son, and he said he sent him forth, verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law. So, you know, you could think, oh, so they're justified, so they're, you know, so they're the wrath propitiated, or so they're free, or so what? So that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of the son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That's incredible, guys. That's incredible. That he would not just be content to save you, but he wants you to be his son, to be his daughter. And I know in our world we say, oh, you know, everybody's a child of God. Not true, right? We all start off children of wrath, according to Ephesians 2. But he is making us his sons and daughters. Now, one of the things I want you to notice there is that in that translation, um, it says adopted as sons. Sometimes in the New Testament, when it's translated sons, it could mean sons and daughters. Um, it's a Delphoi. It's a word that can mean both. This word doesn't mean both. This word only means sons. You might think, well, why is that? Why, why would he not say sons and daughters, but he would say sons, adoption as sons? Is that somehow showing a lower regard to, to women or something like that? And it's not the case. Galatians makes it very clear that we're all equal, right? It's actually just the opposite. Both men and women and boys and girls are called sons because in adoption, we receive Jesus' actual sonship for ourselves. You aren't given a relationship with the Father. You're given the relationship with the Father. In adoption, you're being treated as Jesus is. You're being given his relationship to the Father. Do you see the difference? That's why he says adoption is sons, is because he's the son, and we receive his relationship. And so, you know, for eternity past, you have, you know, you have the Father, and you have the Son, and the Father loves the Son, right? He delights in the Son from all eternity past, you know, um, before creation. He loves the Son. And what we have in adoption is that, is that we're here, and we're receiving the love. We're receiving the relationship that the, that the son has always received from the father. We're receiving in adoption Jesus' place in the family. We're receiving his seat at the dinner table. We're receiving his access. We're receiving his inheritance, all the future blessings that Jesus has won on the cross and, and that he deserves just for who he is, the son. We're receiving. We're receiving it because we've received sonship. We're receiving um, his place at the father's side. We're receiving the father's embrace. We're receiving the place, the son's place in the father's affections. Remember at the, at the baptism, he says, this is my son in whom I'm pleased. This is my beloved son, and I'm completely pleased with him. We're receiving that affection. We're receiving direct access to the father's heart that Jesus has always had. We're receiving the father's constant attention that Jesus always had. The good news of the gospel, guys, is that God the father is giving you all the love and attention and affection that he's always given and has always been due to the son. And that's why men and women, boys and girls, are called sons in this particular passage is because we've received his sonship. Isn't that amazing? It's just incredible. Because you haven't just, it's not like you received a new relationship. You know, when we talk about like getting, you know, it'll give you a relationship with God. That's very too tepid. 
The relationship you're receiving is Jesus' relationship with the Father. And um, it's not a new one. It's an ancient, eternal relationship of love that you're actually like hopping right in here. You know, the Holy Spirit just pops you right in there like, hey, guys, you know, like, I'm here too, right? We're receiving that. How can we receive that? John 1 says, but to all that received Jesus, he gave the right, and who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Believers, you actually have the same relationship Jesus has with the Father because you've been adopted in. Isn't that amazing? But there's more, okay? And the more is, if you look at that passage, uh, Galatians 4, 6, take a look at that. So he said we've been adopted as sons, and then look at Galatians 4, 6 says, and because you are sons, God has sent his, the spirit of the Son into your hearts to cry, Abba, Father. What's going on here? Well, just like you um, are now receiving all the love that the Father's always had for the Son, He's saying in this passage, now the Holy Spirit is allowing you to have the same love for the Father that he's always had. The, the Son has always loved the Father. And the Holy Spirit, it's called here the Spirit of the Son, has been placed in you to where now you are beginning to love the Father the way Jesus has. So you don't have to try and muster up love for the Father. You're actually loving him because the Holy Spirit's within you and giving you a love, and it's Jesus' actual love. How do I know this? Well, check this out. In verse uh, 6, it says, he talks about the Spirit of the Son, the Holy Spirit being in you. Is when you came to Christ, you got united with Christ. The Holy Spirit came in you, unites you to Jesus. Now Jesus' life can flow in through you, out to others, right? And then that love is that you have, part of it is it's love for the Father, so that now you have Jesus' love and his loyalty and his trust in the Father. And it's coming out through your heart, through the Spirit. And we can see that in verse 6, because he says that the Spirit is causing you to, to cry out, Abba. It's a really weird word to pick for this, because this is Paul. He's writing to Greek-speaking people, and that's an Aramaic word. There's no real good reason to do that, right? So you're writing to Greek speakers, and you say, hey, you're crying out to God, Abba. Abba means dad or daddy, right? It's an Aramaic word. It's a, it's a word that children would call out to their, to their dads. But the, why does he do this? Well, it's an Aramaic word. That's the language Jesus spoke, guys. Jesus spoke Aramaic, right? They didn't speak Aramaic. Jesus spoke Aramaic. This is the way that Jesus would commonly talk of his father, and it was revolutionary, when he did it in public, people got upset, right? Because it was too familiar. It was too cozy with God, right? To be calling him Abba, like a little child would call their daddy. Call him Abba, Father. And what he's saying here is that when you are calling out to God in that way, and you're loving him as your heavenly father, that that love is something that's coming from the Son, through the Spirit, into your heart. You're having the same heart cry Jesus had because you have the Spirit of the Son within you. Isn't that amazing? That when you have this love for the Father, that's not your love. That's Jesus' love for the Father that you've always had through the Holy Spirit, out of your heart, out of your mouth. It's incredible, right? It's incredible. Something the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit puts us right in here, right? Puts us right in there. A relationship with God, but no more than that, the relationship with God. And one of the things I want to say about this when, I'm, when we're talking about um, these images of the atonement, I want to challenge you this morning, guys, to, to live in all of these, 
okay, to live in all these. These aren't even all the ways we could look at the cross. I mean, we could talk about the cross as purification, that he makes us clean. That's not on there. There's other ones that we could use. But guys, God has given us such a rich description of what he's done on the cross. We should be living in and ministering and, and worshiping through all of these and more, right? Because some of us have, like, have a couple that we get really excited about. Like, maybe you're, like, super excited about Christus Victor and propitiation, but you really, really, really need to grow here in adoption or redemption. We all have areas that we tend to neglect. I'd like you to mark it on your sheet which one it is, because, guys, the gospel has such richness that it solves so many problems in our life. I mean, this is why Paul could say to the Corinthians, when I came to you, I I decided to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And, And you look at what that means. And it means everything in the Christian life can flow out of the cross. And so I want to encourage you, write down right now, which ones, and I want you to really think about this for yourself, which ones of these do you neglect? Which ones of these do you tend to focus on? We need to have a balanced approach. We need to have the whole benefits of the gospel. We need the whole benefits of the gospel when we're sharing the gospel, right? Some of us only know one way to share the gospel, and that kind of hampers us. Like, um, most of us are familiar with propitiation, right? as a way to share Christ, right? That, that Jesus has taken away the wrath of God, that every single person alive should see that they're in great danger. Every single person alive that's not in Christ is hanging by a thread over an abyss of judgment before God, and everyone's thread snaps eventually, right? At death, everyone's thread. I mean, we shouldn't be surprised when our thread snaps. Everyone's thread's going to snap. We're all hanging over an infinite abyss. What an amazing gift to know that we're safe from the only thing we really should have ever, ever feared, right? That's propitiation. But what about this? What about going to the gospel through the guilt that everybody carries? I mean, there's so much guilt in our culture, it's unbelievable. Our culture has become not less guilty, but more guilty, guys. And justification is a solution for that, guys. Guilt eats people alive. I mean, how many of the psychological ills that we have in ourselves and in our community stem from the corrosive effects of guilt? Guilt is like an acid that just eats away at your soul. And what, how amazing that we get to tell people how to be freed from the only guilt that really matters, our objective legal guilt before God. David said, against you and you only of our sin. All of our sins are ultimately against God. And to be freed from that, what a blessing. That's one gospel on-ramp. So you have a gospel on-ramp of um, fear. You have a gospel on-ramp of guilt. What about a gospel on-ramp of the evil in this world? I mean, the news is all full of it, right? The kind of evil we have in this world. What about giving people the good news of the gospel in Christus Victor? You ever done that? That'd be interesting, right? I, was, I went um, up to, to do a wedding a couple years ago up in San Francisco, and I was riding in a cab because I didn't know about Uber yet. So I was old school. And I was riding in a cab with this guy, and he was from another country. I don't know where. But anyway, he's just talking about how everything's terrible, everything's awful. And... I was like, I don't, not normally super outgoing in a cab, but I said, um, I said, well, you know, God's going to come back and make it all right, make it all good. Well, I hope so, he better, you know, that kind of thing. And I'm like, no, seriously, Jesus is going to come back. He's defeated the powers of evil. He's going to come back and make all things right in this world. Well, I hope that's true. And I said, no, 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 this is actually true. Like, this is actually a thing. This is actually coming in the future. The important thing for this person and for all of us would be that we don't get removed along with Satan. 
right? When he makes the world new. He's going to remove all causes of evil. We are those, but Jesus has forgiven us. We can enjoy this new world that God's going to create. I mean, that would be an awesome thing to tell people. People are very doom and gloom about the world, and we could tell them about how Jesus is going to make all things new. What about the on-ramp of self-destructive behavior? (laughs) What about a gospel that we share when we start with redemption, right? We look at how many people are stuck in addictions and self-destructive behaviors, and they're ruled by sin, and they keep scratching, right? They just keep scratching the wound, and it grows, right? What about sharing with them that Jesus has come to set them free from the power of sin, right? How about the fact that the gospel is the healing cream that will set them free? Like, that's a great place to start, right? You see how you have different on-ramps? You have different ways to go at the gospel. There isn't just one way. You know, there isn't just one way to enter. You want to share all this with people, but you need to come at it some way, and we have a bunch of ways to do it. Or what about people that are so desperate to be loved, right? So desperate to be loved, so lonely. Maybe they're in a cycle of kind of self-destructive relationships because they're craving that, right? And how that could set them free if they knew that there was a God who did all these things to have them as his own children. I mean, God's given us a variety of ways to communicate the gospel, and we need to make sure that we, that we know them and that we're ready to share them, that we've rehearsed them in our minds. Guys, listen to this. So God has given us all these images so that we can know for sure that everyone we know lives next to one of these on-ramps, okay? Everyone lives next to one of these gospel on-ramps. Everyone does. And and so there's no no one that we can't somehow get to the gospel um, from where they're actually at. How about thinking about this when counseling each other and, and even ourselves to counsel one another? This, guys, is a medicine chest, of things that can help us spiritually, right? We think of like a, a believer that deals with chronic guilt. What do they need to hear? Justification, right? You think about a, a believer that deals with chronic guilt, like justification is the solution to that and digging into justification with them. Or what about the person who feels hopeless um, and, and is walking, you know, to walk in freedom from things like pornography and addictions? What do they need to hear? This is out loud. Go for it. Redemption, okay, redemption right here, that they may not even know or they may be believing the Satan's lies about um, the freedom or the lack of freedom that we can have. They can walk in freedom. Get them into Romans 6, dig into the idea of redemption. Or what about the believer that's, that's fearful and terrorized by the demonic, right? What does a person like that need to heal? Here, a friend of mine, he was telling a story the other day about how they moved into this new house when they first got married, and it was like all of a sudden a ton of fighting, you know, and they were real peaceful before this, and they're in this house, and there's a ton of fighting, and they're, they're thinking about it, and they're wondering what's going on, and finally he realizes, like, we need to pray over this house. You know, there's some sort of evil in this house that needs to be prayed against. We can do that, guys, because of Christus Victor. We can pray, and we can tell them to leave the house, to leave them alone, and they did that, and that, that took care of things, but, I mean, we need to be thinking about that, and I was, it was so cool because he was reminding me when he was talking about it. He goes, well, Eric, that's applying the gospel, too, right? That's applying the gospel too. That's applying the victory of Jesus. And so we pray and we ask God to remove the evil presence from this place or a person that's being, you know, terrorized by these things. That's what they need. Think about the person who just won't forgive others, you know, believers that will not forgive others. They need to be reminded of justification. They probably need to be reminded of propitiation. They probably need to be reminded of redemption. There's probably a lot of things they need to be reminded of. But the gospel is for that too. Or the believer that lives in constant fear. You know, they need to be thinking about propitiation. The only thing they should fear has been removed. Or what about the believer that just feels distant to God? There's very little confidence. 
has a weak prayer life. You know, I think that's where we need to be thinking about adoption, right? And that person doesn't have a sense, even though they're a believer, they don't have a sense of God's adoption of them, that, that God has made them his very own son or daughter. And so these guys are just, you know what's wild about these? These are just first century images that God's using for us to understand the cross. The cross and what Jesus did on the cross is actually deeper than any of these. These are his ways of communicating to us so we can understand what he did. But the reality of the cross must be something even deeper than this. It's all this, but more. And it turns out that the reality of the cross is something more wonderful than we can even understand right now. And that we'll have endless ages in the world to come to search it out. That we'll be able to search the mystery of his wounds. And and that searching, guys, um, starts today. And it's something we do in the Lord's Supper, right? In the Lord's Supper, we, we abide near the cross and we search the mystery of his wounds. And in the Lord's Supper, we both remember the wounds of Jesus and we receive life from the wounds of Jesus. In the Lord's Supper, we, we take the bread and the cup. And so um, the bread here, it's uh, gluten-free. You don't need to worry about that um, if that's an issue for you. You take this bread, you take this cup, and as you, you hold this bread, you think about Jesus became a real physical man. God became a real physical man to die for your sins and do all these things for you. And you take the cup and you remember that his blood, though real human blood, because he's God and because he was sinless, has the power to cleanse you from any sin. Cleanse you from any sin and to set you free. And as we take this, we also receive life from Jesus' true spiritual presence. So even though the the bread and the cup, they remain what they are, stays bread, this stays juice, but somehow by the power of the Holy Spirit, as we take it, we feed upon Christ. That the Holy Spirit gives us life. He feeds us. And I was talking to a guy this week that was saying, you know, that he has experienced feeding by the Lord in a powerful way during communion the last few weeks is that he, when he takes it, he has this sense the Holy Spirit is truly empowering him once again. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the food that it is. And we thank you for the food that the word points to, which is your son, Jesus Christ. As we take the Lord's Supper, Lord, we, we pray that you would strengthen us, that you would fill us. We pray that you would encourage us. We pray, Lord, that it would be a rich time of remembrance. Father, you're so good to us. Why would you bother? Why would you bother to do all this for those who cared so little for you? And yet you did. All these things and more. And then adoption, Lord, that you would want us to be your kids. And we, we just pray, Lord, that we would live into that, that we would not stand aloof to you that we would seek out as much time as we possibly can to bask in your presence, to enjoy your love. Lord, you have not been distant and far off to us. We pray that we would draw near to you. That your spirit would so move us like we were learning about with the affections of Christ. The affections that Christ has always had for you, we want more of those. We want you to fill us with that. We want to experience that, that sonship that you and the Son have experienced from eternity past. We want to experience more and more of that. So we pray, Lord, make our hearts delight in you. We know that that's the one thing that will transform us like nothing else. It's sheer heart delight in who you are. 
And we pray you give us that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covgraceminifee.org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.